draw your attention to Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 20. I could have chosen any number of paragraphs in Luke 1 and 2 or Matthew 1 and 2 as a text for the sermon I'm about to preach. The particular fact and its implication that I want to draw to your attention this morning lies or lie on the face of the Christmas narrative in both Gospels. But this glorious climax of the narrative, perhaps the most famous paragraph in all of the Bible, will certainly serve my purpose as well, as if, uh, as well, if not better, than any other. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. It's a point of the greatest conceivable importance that the narrative of the birth of Jesus is rooted in history as it is during the reign of Augustus, during the governorship of Quirinius. This will continue throughout the Gospels, as you know, and throughout, indeed, the rest of the New Testament. These wonderful things happened in those days under those governments. Later, the same point is going to be made of Jesus at the culmination of his ministry. He died during the reign of Tiberius under the governorship of Pontius Pilate, while Caiaphas was the high priest. All names that are known to us from other sources of history. What others may sometimes, whatever others may sometimes say or think, This is not mythology in any accepted sense of the word. The authors of the Gospels were writing their narratives to be history in the sense that everybody understands history to be. People will make their judgments, of course, about whether these reports faithfully reproduce what happened, but there can be no mistaking the fact that the Gospel writers intend their readers to understand that these events occurred in precisely the same way that Augustus' reign occurred or Quirinius's governorship occurred. Christ's birth, even the, the announcement of his birth to the shepherds, was a real event in the real world in the same way that taxes are real, and we all know how real taxes are. To the everyday world of that time, into its population, its politics, its social currents, comes suddenly and unexpectedly from heaven this mighty and wonderful interruption. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Luke never actually says in this passage that any Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled. But just as Malachi 3 and 4 lie behind Gabriel's message to Zechariah and Elizabeth, just as Isaiah 7 lay beneath his message to Mary, so without Luke actually saying so, so Micah 5, 2 through 5 lies unmistakably beneath the history he is reporting here. And the lesson is all the more effective for his understatement of that fact. Events transpire to ensure that the birth will occur in Bethlehem. Even a a pagan emperor's need for revenue is made to contribute to the unfolding of God's plan of salvation for the world. And in Bethlehem, a mother gives birth to a prince of ancient lineage 
who will shepherd the scattered flock of Israel and extend his authority to the ends of the earth, proclaiming peace. That pretty well sums up Micah's prophecy and this history. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The fields today identified as the shepherds' fields are some two miles from Bethlehem uh, toward the Dead Sea and below the snow line. It's wonderful to imagine David as a young man walking over those same fields as he tended to his father's flocks, fighting off the lion and the bear. The text doesn't say that Jesus was born at night. That thought is taken over from the time of the appearance of the angels to the shepherds, which could have been hours or even a few days after the Lord's birth. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. The Lord, the shepherds instinctively realized the significance of a word spoken or sung by angels, God had spoken to them. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Our Heavenly Father, once again, having read this magnificent account of these stupendous events, fill our hearts with joy. Use that joy, O God, to strengthen our faith and to animate our hope. If such was his first coming, what shall be his second? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to reflect with you this Christmas Eve on the simple fact, obvious to any observant reader of the Christmas narratives in Matthew and Luke, that the participants in this high drama and this incomparable history were all simple people, ordinary, unremarkable, and unknown outside the small circle of their personal acquaintance. In this history, we do encounter people of substance, to be sure. The name of the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, begins the account of the Lord's birth. Shortly after that, the name of one of his governors, Quirinius. Everyone in the world knew the name Caesar Augustus, and everyone in the Levant would have known who Quirinius was. 
In Matthew chapter 2, Rome's client king, Herod, is mentioned along with the chief priests and theologians of Jerusalem. These were important people, well-known people, at least to the Jews in the capital. None of these people, however, had any real interest in what was transpiring at that very moment. They were either utterly ignorant as the Roman emperor and governor, carelessly indifferent as the priests and theologians in Jerusalem, or irrationally and bitterly fearful as the paranoid King Herod. The role these people play in the unfolding drama of the incarnation of God the Son is entirely unintentional. Their unbelief reduces them to the role of pawns who, quite unaware and unwitting, serve the interests of the coming king. The only people of real consequence, as the world measures such a thing, who play a willing role in this history are the unnamed magi who travel from the east to offer their worship to the newborn king of kings. They beautifully portend the faith, love, and loyalty that would soon be given to this same Jesus by men and women of every tongue, tribe, and nation on the earth. But much as we are meant to admire them, and as important as their appearance in Bethlehem is, we don't know their names. We don't know from what country they came. We don't really even know how many of them there were. There were three gifts, but the Bible does not say there were three wise men, still less that their names were Balthazar, Melchior, and Caspar. What is more, they appear after the fact, after Jesus was already born, perhaps weeks, maybe even months after his birth. The dramatis personae in the story of the birth of the Savior of the world, the cast of this drama, all the major players who are named in the biblical account are otherwise utterly insignificant people. No one would ever have imagined that they should have played the key roles in the greatest events that ever occurred in the history of the world. They themselves were living altogether ordinary lives, expecting nothing but more of the same, when into their daily round came fearfully, suddenly, and wholly unexpectedly the voice of God. Had they not been taken up into the events of the coming of the king, no one would ever have known of any of these people. Their names would have disappeared from history as soon as their lives ended, and during their lives they would have been known only to the small circle of their acquaintances. We begin with Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. It was to Zechariah that the angel, of, uh, the angel Gabriel appeared and broke the 400-year-long silence. It had been four centuries since the Lord had last spoken directly and immediately to a human being. That is, not through his word and his spirit. That, the prophet Malachi. Four hundred years had passed on that day when Zechariah entered the holy place to burn incense and there received the news that his old and barren wife was to bear the forerunner of the Messiah. Four hundred years is a long time. We can pardon Zechariah for having no idea whatsoever that such a thing would come to pass in his own lifetime, much less in his own life. The pilgrims had not yet set foot on Plymouth Rock four hundred years ago. 
But why should God have at last spoken to such a little man as Zechariah? Zechariah was a rural priest. He lived in a village in the hill country of Judea. He did not live in Jerusalem. On the occasion of Gabriel's appearance, he was there because his division had rotated into service at the temple and because he had been chosen by lot to offer incense. There were many priests in Judea in those days, and many never were given the opportunity to offer incense. No priest was given the opportunity more than once. So it was an old man's lucky day. Had the angel not appeared, he would have gone home happy that at least once in his life he had been able to enter the holy place of the temple and burn incense in that sacred and storied space. His wife was an older woman, By this time as well, they were a dear couple, but unremarkable, like many others in the church of God who have lived with sorrow. Their sorrow was that they had no children. They were godly people, but nobody knew who these people were outside their own village. They came to Jerusalem and left for home, and no one in the capital was the wiser. Little people like them came and went all the time. And so with Joseph and Mary from Nazareth, a town so inconsequential that it is not mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Apocrypha, in the writings of Josephus, or in the Talmud. Joseph was a tradesman. Whether it would be correct to call him a poor man is a question. There was no or very little middle class in Judea and Galilee in those days. But he certainly was not a man of means when it came time for him to consecrate his firstborn son in the temple by sacrifice. He qualified to offer the cheaper sacrifice of two small birds rather than the much more expensive lamb. Mary was his fiancée from the same town, a maiden among the thousands of other Jewish maidens dreaming of a home and family of her own. No doubt Joseph and Mary had no other plans but of making a life together in Nazareth, raising their children, and waiting like the rest of that small company of the godly in that time and place for the consolation of Israel. They belong most emphatically to that vast multitude of people of whom we would know absolutely nothing were it not for their having been chosen to participate in the arrival of the King of Kings. How inconsequential and how unremarkable these people in fact were is powerfully attested by how little attention the New Testament pays to them after the birth of Jesus. Jesus is himself several times identified in the Gospel as the son of Joseph, but otherwise, after the birth narratives themselves, Joseph is mentioned in his own right not once in the New Testament. Apparently, he died a comparatively young man after he and Mary had had a number of children because the silence of the Gospels concerning him is most easily and naturally explained by the fact that by the time the Lord began his ministry, his father had already died. The fact that Mary is mentioned on a number of occasions in the Gospels, makes that conclusion even more certain. 
She was a widow, and that accounts for her being mentioned, but not her husband. But the fact is, not much is made of her either. She appears on a few occasions during the ministry of the Lord Jesus, always in a group of others, but we hear nothing really of her life, of what sort of woman she was, even very little about what she thought of her firstborn son. She's mentioned in Acts 1 as being among the disciples in Jerusalem, waiting for the descent of the Holy Spirit, but she is not mentioned again in the New Testament. Despite the emphasis some would later place upon her, the Bible itself makes nothing of Mary in its teaching about the Christian faith or the Christian life. Her great service was to bear the Savior of the world. Otherwise, she was and continued to be an ordinary, unremarkable, faithful woman. Like every other Christian, her life takes on its significance solely from her connection to Jesus. And the same may be said of the shepherds, who are the first public to receive the news of the birth of the king. The Christmas narrative has cast such an aura of sanctity around this group of men that we tend to idealize them and their occupation. We tend to think that the angels would, of course, in the nature of the case, have made their announcement to the shepherds because nothing would have been more appropriately beautiful, nor so fitting on a Christmas card than the bucolic scene on the hillside outside of Bethlehem. Men in robes with staffs, sitting around a fire with cute sheep in the background. As a matter of fact, however, shepherds were not viewed generally in Judea in such a positive light. Their manner of life made strict religious observance difficult or impossible, and so consequently they were looked down on by the seriously religious people of the land. What is more, they were, or their profession did not have, the best moral reputation. These men are the forerunners of the so-called sinners who would fill up Jesus' congregations when he began to preach and would hear him gladly when the upright folk only found reason to criticize. We wonder about the future life of these shepherds to whom they told their tale of that wonderful night. But they disappear from history once they leave the Holy Family that same night, never to be heard from again, no doubt having returned to their life, changed men, but still as simple and ordinary as before. And still we are not done. Simeon was an old man when he saw the Lord as a baby in the temple. He was a good man, a faithful man. It could be said of him what it can be said of every truly good man. His hopes in life would be fulfilled by the coming of the Messiah. But if he had been a priest or a theologian, Luke would no doubt have told us. If he had occupied some significant position in the government of Judea, or if he had occupied such a position in his past, no doubt that piece of information would have been given us. Simeon was a very common name among the Jews of that time. It was the name, you remember, of one of the tribes of Israel. It was a name like the four most common names nowadays given to American boys, Michael, Daniel, Joshua, and David. There were Simeons everywhere in those days. There are a number of other Simeons in the Bible, as you know. And like the other actors in this drama, as soon as Simeon comes on stage and speaks his lines, 
his immortal nunc dimittis and his prophecy of the effect of Jesus' life upon first Israel and then his mother. He quietly exits the stage, never to reappear. And after Simeon, we have Anna, an old widow in her mid-80s who had spent her long, lonely life in prayer and devotion. A godly woman, a beautiful woman, but like most women of her time and of any time, a largely invisible woman, known to her loved ones, to a few friends, no doubt, perhaps as well to some of the temple staff because she came there to worship every day, but unknown and inconsequential in every other way. A woman and a widow in the ancient world, two reasons for no one to know who she was or to care. But she was given insight and understanding at that moment when she encountered the Holy Family in the temple and her name and her recognition of the Lord in his early infancy were enshrined forever in the book of God. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, the shepherds, Simeon and Anna. In our culture, even in the church and even in our families, we tend to think of Christmas as a holiday supremely for children. But the historical narrative of the birth of Christ as we find it in Matthew and Luke is not about children. It is much more about old people with broken dreams and about God's faithfulness to his ancient promises revealed to weary faith. And of course the insignificance of the people chosen to participate in the story of the world's salvation is an important theme in Holy Scripture. Why Israel in the first place? The Lord explains in Deuteronomy 7 that it was certainly not because of Israel's status or stature among the nations of the world, for she had none. It was not due to her goodness, for she had little enough of that. It was because of his love for her. And why the tax collectors, the sinners, the ordinary people who populate the entourage of the Lord Jesus once his public ministry begins? Well, the proud and the self-satisfied had no need for Jesus, or so they thought. As Jesus himself said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the indifference and the outright hostility to the incarnate Son of God among the great people of the world has been a constant theme of human history ever since. A 19th century theologian in Germany wrote a book in defense of Christianity entitled On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers. And a book of that title could have been written at any time in every age of our church history. and could be written still today. The cultured despisers of our faith. The Jerusalem theologians. Herod the king, the Roman politicians, the comfortable well-to-do in Judea exist in still larger numbers in our world today. Their identity has not changed through all these centuries. The surprise would be if we were to find that the high and the mighty were suddenly as full of joy over the coming of the incarnate Son of God as the shepherds and Simeon and Anna had been. But it's never been so. History has continued in the same way as it unfolded in those days 
in Jerusalem, Judea, and Bethlehem. The great folk show no interest or open hostility. The simple folk are drawn up into the salvation of God. And so it would continue. Speaking to the congregation he founded in Corinth, Paul would later write, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So it was that first Christmas. And so it has continued to this very day. To be sure, the Lord does not leave himself without a witness to the high and the mighty. Some of the world's greatest kings, some of its greatest minds, some of its greatest warriors, some of its greatest artists, its most accomplished scientists, inventors, musicians, and men of exploits have been followers of Jesus Christ. Lest there be any thought that the truth of Jesus Christ cannot satisfy a great mind or a great vision, there have always been Christians in the upper echelon of human society. But the vast majority of us have been Zechariah's and Elizabeth's, Joseph's and Mary's, shepherds, Simeon's, and Anna's. We are of the sort who has little to boast about except this one thing, our connection to him, to the baby, the king, the Christ, the Savior, the Lord. That truth lies on the face of the Christmas narrative in the Gospels so clearly that he who runs may read. But we're not inclined to see it, you and I, or to take the truth much to our hearts. We don't glory in our weakness, our smallness, our insignificance as we should. We don't heave a sigh of relief that we are as little as we are. We crave the limelight. We long for a name, a reputation, our 15 minutes of fame. We want wealth and pleasure, forgetting that it was, by and large, the great people who could not see the glory of God when it shone all around them. And it was the humble and the small folk who received the word with joy and became immortal as a result. Jesus came into the world in lowliness and humility, and so he remained invisible to the proud. Only those who were lowly themselves were able to see him. To be sure, there is an outward lowliness and an inward lowliness, and those who are poor and those whose condition in the world is very poor are not necessarily lowly in heart. But it is still much easier for them and much more common for them to see Christ for who he is and for what he has done than it is for the high and the mighty. And the reason is simple. Prosperity knits a man to this world. He feels that he is finding a place in this world when really all that is happening is that the world is finding a place in him. Or as the brilliant French Jewess, later Christian philosopher Simone Weil once put it, A beautiful woman, looking at her image in the mirror, may very well believe 
that the image is herself. An ugly woman knows it is not. You get the point. Wealthy people, powerful people, famous people, the beautiful people are naturally more enamored of this world and of their place in this world. They're distracted by its pleasures and preoccupied by their place in it. The world is their oyster. And they spend their days thinking about what they have and still more about what they might still yet obtain. Why think of the world to come when this world offers so much? Ordinary people are more conscious of what they do not have, what they will never have, and what they are not and will never be. This world does not have quite the same grip on them because they're more conscious of the very small place they occupy in the scheme of things. The message of eternal life, of salvation, of a Savior who will rescue them from this world of sin and death makes much more sense to them and strikes them as much more important. The high and the mighty don't want to be rescued. They're happy where they are. Now what does all of that have to do with you and me? Well, thank God that we are all, I think all of us, among the ordinary, the simple people. We are not those who are so wealthy that it is harder for us to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. We are not the powerful and the famous, the men and women of consequence, who will be so easily beguiled into forgetting how little the world and its pleasures can possibly mean when our lives are so short and our death so rapidly approaching. We are the ordinary people out of whom From the beginning of time, the Lord has built his church. The question posed by this history is simple enough, after all. It is the challenge of the whole message of Holy Scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. Would you rather be Herod, the wealthy king, brilliant, powerful, successful, but now nearing death and genuinely insane, Or one of those simple shepherds who heard the angelic choir that night outside Bethlehem and then went back to their flocks to spend the rest of their days and nights remembering what once they had seen and heard. Would you rather be the satisfied, influential, comfortable clerics in Jerusalem or Zechariah and Elizabeth wending their way homeward from Jerusalem? Zechariah mute and... Elizabeth, more than a little confused by what had happened to her husband, and both of them still all unaware of the extraordinary things that were still to come to pass through the life of their son-to-be, whom Gabriel, who stands at God's right hand, had already named John. Would you rather be Caesar Augustus at the height of his power, the most powerful individual man perhaps the world has ever seen, though now more than 70 years of age, and entering into the final troubled years of his life, years that would be darkened not only by family difficulties, but by a number of military and political setbacks. Would you rather be Caesar or Joseph, the unknowing carpenter from Nazareth, who would sire a large family and then die a comparatively young man, but who in his youth was visited by an angel of God and became, at least so far as human beings judged the thing, 
the father of the king of kings. No emperor he, but then in the words of the old Latin prayer of St. Joseph, and speaking of him as the father of his firstborn son, not only to see and to hear, but to carry, to kiss, to clothe, and to care for. Oh, happy man. I think I know the answer to those questions, and I know why you answer as you do. Who among those who understand the world and who know God and who look to the future, I say, who among all of those would not want to be numbered with the Zechariahs and Elizabeths, the Josephs and the Marys, the Simeons and the Annas of this world, who small and unimportant as they were, walked upon ground that was hallowed by the footsteps of Almighty God. Count it this Christmas the greatest, the supreme blessing of your life that you are found by faith in Jesus Christ in that company and not, not, not in the company of those who are envied only by those who have no true knowledge of the baby who was born to be the Savior of the world. Amen.